1: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
2: And I'm Amber. And this week, we've foraged a fun episode for y'all. We're talking about hunter-gatherers, both prehistoric and modern. Let's think back in time, all the way back to 1966. 1966 BCE? Nah, nope. Nope, nope, nope. C.E. Because in 1966, there was a conference held called Man the Hunter.
1: (laughs) I was trying to stay solemn.
2: And while the story of human hunting and gathering certainly doesn't start there. This makes it sound like this is where it ends. (laughs) Yeah um this is where we start our story today well just in
1: case you're curious and you go to wikipedia oh man the hunter (laughs) the page for man the hunter has a handy disambiguation in case you thought you were looking for manhunter thanks wikipedia Um, which
2: like i read it immediately thought it was mindhunter and then i got mad
1: (laughs) no leave mindhunter in the garbage where it belongs (laughs) oh my god
2: (laughs) But that's a separate podcast. That yeah, I sorry everyone who actually
1: likes Mindhunter. I just don't at, care.
2: <laughs> just I host it at Anna without any recording devices on. Um, <laughs> Send so. all
1: your angry emails to amber.zambelli.internet.org.
2: <laughs> Slash backslash the dirt.info. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> uh, Man the Hunter was a 1966 symposium organized by Richard Lee and Irvin DeVore. The symposium resulted in a book of the same title and attempted to bring together for the first time a comprehensive look at recent ethnographic research on hunter-gatherers. Anthropological historians have argued that this symposium was one of the high points of cultural ecology. They report the symposium as concentrating on contemporary hunters and gatherers and noted that the contributors were mostly American cultural anthropologists. The main point of the conference was that given that hunting was humanity's original source of livelihood, any theory of society and the nature of man would (laughs) require a deep knowledge of how hunters live. The symposium also emphasized the rivalry between cultural and materialist understanding of culture and society. So this week we're going to talk about how anthropologists look at hunting and gathering, oh, sorry, hunting and gathering societies, both contemporary ones and prehistoric ones, how those groups have informed the way we think about human behavior in the past, but also how those same studies of modern hunters and gatherers have shifted as anthropology itself has evolved.
1: So humans have been hunters and gatherers far longer than we've been anything else. If you think about the timeline of the human lineage, and if you want to think about the timeline of the human lineage, you can go to episodes 29 through 31 of the Dirt Podcast. The first evidence we have (laughs) for hunting is with Homo heidelbergensis. That's a species that was around in Africa 600,000 years ago. And earlier hominin species were certainly foragers, if not hunters. And then we have evidence for the first pastoralists and the first agricultural management of resources between 12,000 and 10,000 years ago. So we've only been an agricultural species for a fraction of the time that we've been evolving as humans. It shouldn't be too surprising, then, that anthropologists might look to modern hunter-gatherer groups to try to learn something about the past. A member of, say, the Inuit culture who practices traditional foodways and hunts and fishes and gathers food from their environment is going to be a much better animal for a prehistoric lifestyle than, say, me, since I do most of my hunting and foraging at the grocery store.
2: <laughs>
1: Are you um, laughing about me at the grocery store?
2: Yeah, I just... I'm, I'm thinking about you hunting and foraging outside the grocery store, too. I mean, I do so forage. Up in, a, I, up in a deer blind?
1: No, I, I don't hunt. I, I, I don't hunt. But um, I do... I actually just um, borrowed a book from the library digitally, since I can't physically go yet, sigh. But I just, um, I got a book on foraging in the Bay Area. So
2: I haven't haven't cracked
1: it open yet. I haven't cracked it open yet, but um, I am definitely going to poke around the woods safely. Dad, if you're (laughs) listening. He doesn't listen. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) Man, that... Could be said by either of us. So, <laughs> Wikipedia lists 32 groups of modern hunter-gatherers that are still around today. Though some members of those groups may not practice traditional life ways any longer. Um, groups most often cited in in these studies of contemporary hunter-gatherers include folks like the San and the Hadza in sub-Saharan Africa, the Ashe in the Amazon, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Inuit, Yupik, Inupiat of northern far northern north america Mm -hmm. and um, indigenous australians and now (laughs) we forgive you a giant generalization from yale
1: the thing is when you try to encompass all of hunting and gathering in all possible environments in the world what you get is a giant generalization so have at it (laughs)
2: And this is from the um, uh, the Human Research Area Files. Haraf. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds like something uh, an elderly British uh, diplomat or, or like <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> parliament member. <laughs> it, just, it
2: just makes me think of like me trying to draw a giraffe like I would produce something that could only be would produce a giraffe. giraffe.
1: (laughs) Or perhaps it's a lady giraffe, it's a haraf.
2: Ah, yes.
1: And she's subject to harafment, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Oh no! Which brings us back to
1: we laugh to keep from crying. Oh God,
2: we sure do. We're very punchy this week. Oof.
1: We really are. Um, Hi, everybody.
2: Boy, this isn't. This is not a funny episode, though.
1: It's really not. We're so. just. We just are where we are, and uh, we'll <laughs> see how much of this makes it in.
2: <laughs> Based on ethnographic data and cross-cultural comparisons, it is widely accepted that recent hunter-gatherer societies generally one are fully or semi-nomadic. Two, live in small communities. Three, have low population densities. Four, do not have specialized political officials. Five, have little wealth wealth differentiation. Six, are economically specialized only by age and gender. Seven, usually divide labor by gender with women gathering wild plants and men fishing and almost always doing the hunting. Eight, have animistic religions. That is, believe all natural things have an intentionality or a vital force that can affect humans. But wait! (laughs) (laughs) The giant generalization doesn't apply to every category of hunter-gatherer? What? (laughs) What? Um, The HRAF publication goes on to say... Not all hunter-gatherers conform to this list of traits. It's very iconoclastic of them. Wow. Um, in fact, ethnographers of societies in the Pacific coast of North America, largely in the northwestern U.S. and southwestern Canada, have given us a very different picture. These hunting-gathering societies, many of whom depended largely on fishing in their traditional economies, had larger communities, stationary villages, and social inequality hunting gathering societies they're just like us with social it's, inequality
1: it's the, for a, the other the other back page of people magazine doesn't it's not the one where it's like yes, celebrities they're just like I'm us
2: there. i'm there i'm there i made a You're pop good. culture reference amber i don't know that you did oh <laughs> for a long time many scholars thought of them as anomalous hunter gatherers Inherently rude. Uh, but the picture is rapidly changing, largely as a result of archaeological research in the Upper Paleolithic period prior to the emergence of agriculture. During this period, hunter gatherers in many areas of the globe appear to have developed inequality. Such complex hunter-gatherers were found in North America, in the interior Northwest Plateau, the Canadian Arctic, and the American Southeast, as well as in South America, the Caribbean, Japan, parts of Australia, northern Eurasia, and the Middle East. (laughs) It's a lot of places. It's a lot of places. Archaeologists infer inequality from the presence of prestige items, such as ornamental jewelry, or major differences in burials, indicative of rich and poor individuals. Complex hunter-gatherer societies, in contrast to simpler hunter-gatherers, generally have the following traits. So, don't worry, we're still in that craft document. Yeah, and don't worry, we we're another. still going to make a
1: generalization <laughs>
2: we, we still, via list. We, we got another list. One, higher population densities, 2 to 10 people per square mile. Which is not a lot, but hey, <laughs> social distancing. It's, it's not... Um, That's about what I'm at right now. Yeah, because I'm back in West Virginia. Um, Two, fully sedentary or seasonally sedentary communities. Check. (laughs) Three, more complex sociopolitical organization primarily based on economic production. Four, significant socioeconomic differences. Five, some private ownership of resources and individual storage. 6. Competitive displays and feasts. 7. Elites try to control access to the supernatural.
1: I'm going to keep all the ghosts for me. (laughs)
2: Um, 8. While almost all hunter-gatherers have some kind of astronomical system, complex hunter-gatherer groups generally exhibit some solstice observation or calendars.
1: So we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes to some overviews of the research that has been done on these groups in the past. Now, if you've been listening to The Dirt for a while now, you may get the sense that this is the point in the episode where we say, But wait, here's why this is bad. And to some extent, you'd be right. Ethnographic studies are tricky at best when researchers essentially poke their noses into cultures they don't belong to in order to study them. We've brought this up on a number of occasions, but in light of the Black Lives Matter protests and the deep, much-needed systemic change that we're starting to see in 2020, we wanted to briefly share our thoughts with you, our listeners. Anthropology as a discipline began in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, built on the ideas that prevailed at the time. Among those ideas was the desire to understand differences between human populations all over the world. And keep in mind, many of these populations were unknown to Europeans until shortly before the 17th and 18th centuries, with the age of exploration sending European fleets of discovery to map the lesser known parts of the world and take stuff from them. Stuff like botanical specimens and detailed maps and geological samples, yes, but also people, and stuff that belonged to those people. In the same way that scientists were trying to assign the influx of new plants and animals to a classification system, anthropologists were trying to classify people. Even in the 17th and 18th centuries, much of the European understanding of the world came from biblical texts. Justification for a sense of otherness of darker-skinned populations, and while we're at it, straight-up justification for slavery, comes from the, quote, curse of Ham, which occurs in the book of Genesis. There are... Infinite pages of discussion about this passage, but it has often been interpreted as one, explaining why the Canaanites were subjugated to the Israelites, and two, why the Canaanites and other populations had darker skin. And I think it must be a human trait to want to organize things into groups the better to understand them. To be able to say this unknown thing is like this thing that I do know, so I understand a little bit about it now, is part of how we learn. And unfortunately, this characteristic played a big part of the desire of white European scholars to stick these newly, quote unquote, discovered cultures into groups with a veneer of biological science over the framework framework of understanding provided by the church teachings and existing class structures. So as anthropology developed, this was the basis for it. What early anthropologists implied, or more often than not, explicitly stated, is that there were fundamental biological differences between groups of humans based on where they were from, the shapes of their heads, faces, and bodies, and the color of their skin and other traits. In addition to this, for many of these scholars in the early days of anthropology, race and species were interchangeable terms. We're not going to spend... Yeah, yikes. Um... So we're not going to spend too much more time on this right now, but it is a discussion that needs to remain ongoing inside and outside of anthropology and archaeology. And as two white liberal arts educated podcasters, we acknowledge our immense privilege and we will continue to improve, to educate ourselves and to use our platform to amplify the voices and research of scholars of color.
2: Yeah, well said. Uh, So let's take a quick ad break. And then we'll resume our hunting and gathering.
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com. Yeah. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
2: All right. So real quick. Hello. Still with us? (laughs) Humans are unique in a number of ways.
1: Cool, cool. <laughs> like from other animals. Like we're you know there's a reason anthropology is a thing. We're interesting.
2: I thought it was because we're self-centered. It's also that, but especially
1: even different from other primates is probably mm-hmm. what I should have put in the script. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: fine. <But> what- <laughs> But one especially interesting area of difference is in our life histories. That is, how long do we spend in each phase of life from infancy to old age? Please do not make me do that dumb The Riddle old, of the Sphinx. The riddle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But, I didn't
1: even think of it until you just said it. Great. Listeners, in your heads, go ahead and do the riddle of the Sphinx. The and Riddle we'll of move
2: the Sphinx. On. All right. Consult all your spingies. Now we're back.
1: Oh God, I hate that. I hate
2: that the plural
1: of sphinx is not sphinges. It is. Ick. I know, but ick. I don't like that. <laughs> it is. It's. Crazy. I know it is. I know.
2: So, all right. Well, let's get back to the, the hard-hitting facts here. Sorry. Anyone who's had a baby or has seen a baby knows that humans only <laughs> that humans come out only partially cooked.
1: You like my hard-hitting fact?
2: <laughs> so. We can't They're not do done any- yet. <laughs> so we can't do anything for a remarkably long time. Like, it's a really big deal when a baby can, like, hold her head up by herself or, like, flop over, much less, like, you know, make itself lunch. In contrast, other baby animals, like a baby rabbit or... A baby fawn or a baby calf have their eyes open and they can at least sort of like walk in that gangly, wobbly, cute way within a few hours of birth. Um, we can't do that. And so, as a result, humans have to invest a lot of time and care into our young. And part of how that factors into hunter gatherer societies has to do with the other end of the age spectrum, old. (laughs) Thank you. It seems, (laughs) it seems that grandmothers, for our purposes, postmenopausal females might have played a big role in the success of our species during our hunter-gatherer days and and still today in modern hunter-gatherer groups. In other species, females tend not to live long beyond menopause, with a few exceptions, including whales.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a a link on the show notes. Um, We've done whale diversions multiple times in the past on this show, so I didn't necessarily want to do a tangent here, but yeah. Uh, There are whale grandmothers, it seems.
2: So, yeah, don't worry. We will always deliver that cetacean content. Yes, we will. (laughs) I'm going to draw from an NPR piece that uh, was published a couple years ago in 2018. (laughs) A newer body of research and theory, much of it created by women, has conjured a very different scenario. It probably looks a little more like a quirky indie film than a Hollywood blockbuster. The star of this new film? grandma. Killing it, NPR. <laughs> Kristen Hawks is an anthropologist at the University of Utah. She tries to figure out our past by studying modern hunter-gatherers like the Hadza, who likely have lived in the area that is now northern Tanzania for thousands of years. Groups like this are about as close as we can get to seeing how our early human ancestors might have lived. I don't feel great about that sentence.
1: No, and I... I bit my tongue very hard.
2: I just wanted to, I just needed to inject a little bit of editorial there that. um,
1: It's not necessarily looking into the past to look at current hunter gatherer
2: groups. Yeah. That's all it's, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it is, it is always helpful to see examples of other life ways If nothing else, and this is like the very like post-processual in me saying like if for no other reason than to kind of expand your like um, the boundaries of what you can envision for other groups. Right.
1: But it's Um, by no means an analog.
2: Yeah. So a little note here (laughs) that um, people living in a place for thousands of years. That in no way means that we should think that their, uh, life ways or their technologies or like society or anything has been static during that time. Absolutely not. So I, and I, you know, our listeners can probably think of several times that we have provided examples for that, that kind of counter that, um, that, that bias that, um, it's very understandable to bring to something because if you don't know, you don't know. And so you have, you have your own experience and your own assumptions to lean to like, kind of lean on. But when this is what you do and this is what you study and your business is knowing about it, um, that is by no means an excuse. So let's just, let's just go on and learn more about Kristen Hawks and her work. Over many extended field visits, Hawks and her colleagues kept track of how much food a wide sample of Hadza community members were bringing home. She says that when they tracked the success rates of individual men, quote, they almost always failed to get a big animal, end quote. They found that the average hunter went out pretty much every day and was successful on exactly 3.4% of those excursions. Wow that i mean relatable (laughs) yeah no i that wasn't my career like as a hunter
1: Uh, Uh, in a manner uh, of speaking uh, yeah 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 understood (laughs)
2: that that meant that in the society at least the hunting hypothesis seemed way off the mark if people were if people here were depending on wild meat to survive they would have starved indeed so much for man the hunter the article continues so if dad wasn't bringing home the bacon, who was? After spending a lot of time with the women in their daily foraging trips, the researchers were surprised to discover that the women, both young and old, were providing the majority of calories to their families and groupmates. Mostly, they were digging tubers, which are deeply buried and hard to extract. The success of a mother at gathering these tubers correlated with the growth of her child. But something else surprising happened once mom had a second baby. That original relationship went away, and a new correlation emerged with the amount of food their grandmother was gathering. In this foraging society, it turns out, grandmothers were more important to child survival than fathers. Mom and grandma were keeping the kids fed. This finding led Hawks to completely reevaluate what she thought she knew about human evolution. Grandmothers were crucial in this environment to childhood survival. So maybe it wasn't an accident that humans are the only great ape species in which women live so long past reproductive age. If having a helpful grandmother increased a kid's chances of survival, natural selection may well have started selecting for older and older women.
1: So what it's saying is, so the article goes on to say this endowment would have passed also to human men, meaning that if it's a sex-linked trait that is allowing women to live longer and longer past childbearing age, if it's a sex-linked trait, it's on the X chromosome, which men also have one of. Ah, okay. All right. Or just in general, genetically, if it's genetic that people are or women are living longer, just because that trait for living longer exists in part of the population. It can get passed to, you know, through generations, it can get passed to male members of the population too.
2: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's more about Kristen Hawke's work in a piece from The Atlantic that I'm going to pull from here. The grandmother hypothesis theory has been surprisingly controversial given its, oh, factor. Who wouldn't want another reason to celebrate grandmas? I guess unless you don't like your grandma. Kristen Hawks, who has been exploring this theory for years, developed a new mathematical model in response to a 2010 study that appeared to disprove it. And by it, meaning the grandmother theory or hypothesis, beginning with a population that lived for about as long as apes typically do. She modeled evolution over time and showed that, quote, even weak grandmothering drives the evolution of longevity from an ape-like value into the human range. (laughs) Like, burn weak. I know <laughs> weak grandmothering. Oh I can God, think of fun tables of
2: of weak grandmothering. There's some weak grandmothering out there, <laughs> and if you've experienced yes. it, I see you. Just that's fair. That's not a joke. That's um, <laughs> just no. Like, I, I me genuinely like
1: no, acknowledging that. I, yep.
2: But yeah, let's get let's get back in the pocket of big grandma over here.
1: <laughs> <sighs> she has such big pockets in her apron. Okay. All other female primates fail to live much past their childbearing years, but she showed that after less than 60,000 years in the model, and with, quote, only a little bit of grandmothering, end quote, the human lifespan doubled. Hawks then takes this even further, suggesting that when certain apes started pursuing more complex resources, for example, by developing tools for hunting, grandmothers came about in order to ensure that small children weren't left behind. With the kids provided for, natural selection was free to favor those with larger brains, thus paving the way for those apes to evolve into humans. And grandmother's style of upbringing, with its emphasis on social dependence, gave rise to, quote, a whole array of social capacities that are then the foundation for the evolution of other distinctly human traits, including pair bonding, bigger brains, learning new skills, and our tendency for cooperation, end quote. Grandmothers, Hawkes says, are what make us human. With that, and a quick thank you to all the wonderful grandmas in the world, I want to shift over to the archaeological and ethnographic record. We've spent a lot of time this episode in theory world, where Amber lives, but there are some really interesting tidbits from material culture and from contemporary observation that we wanted to share as well. Not to suggest that Amber doesn't live in the archaeological world as well. You're just really good at theory.
2: Thanks.
1: (laughs) Our first example comes from the Siberian Times and a story from February 2020, which was... Approximately seventy-eight years ago, and it's about early ceramics. Quote: Ancient potteries started to appear in the Amur region in the Russian Far East between roughly sixteen thousand and twelve thousand years ago, as the Ice Age slightly eased. But what was cooking? A new international study asks not only why the pots evolved at this time, but examines the type of food they served. It turns out some ancient Siberian hunter-gatherers survived the Ice Age by inventing pottery, which helped them to maintain a fish diet. Others used their new pots to cook meat. These cooking secrets are revealed by lipid residue, or fatty acid, analysis of 28 potsherds found at various sites in the Russian Far East. These are some of the oldest pots in the world. The Osipovka culture in the lower reaches of the Amur River used pots to process fish, most likely migratory salmon, and obtain aquatic oils. That sounds like something you'd see on Instagram. Aquatic oils. Yeah,
2: you can get get them through a multi-level marketing scheme. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Such salmon-based hot pots remain a favorite in the area even today. For late glacial period hunter-gatherers, such dishes were seen as an alternative food source during periods of major climatic fluctuation. For example, when severe cold prevented hunting on land. You can just walk over the ice and then all of a sudden you're on the ocean. That makes the Osupovka similar to people in modern-day Japanese islands, says the study in the Quaternary Science Reviews. Yet, the Gromatuka culture upstream on the Amur had other culinary ideas. Here, pots were being used to cook land animals like deer and goat, scientists found. This was, quote, probably to extract nutritious bone grease and marrow during the hungriest seasons, end quote. And that's according to a synopsis of the report. Because if you boil bones, you get a lot out of them. Bone broth. Also on Instagram. The clay cooking pots used by these ancient people were made in different ways in various localities. This is seen as indicating a parallel process of innovation where separate groups without contact all found the same solutions spurred by pressure from the cold climates in which they survived. Peter Jordan, director of the Arctic Center at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands and lead author of this study said, quote, the insights are particularly interesting because they suggest that there was no single origin point for the world's oldest pottery. We're starting to understand that very different pottery traditions were emerging around the same time, but in different places, and that the pots were being used to process very different kinds of resources. And speaking of resources, let's have a quick ad break.
2: Nice. <laughs>
0: Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our T Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from and most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop and click on the link.
2: Uh, can you imagine being the like inventor of salmon. Coming up with salmon. the first
1: pot. Oh, of salmon. <laughs> like, Wait, I know we talk,
2: a, we talk a lot about like, you know, people looking at something and being like, thinking to eat it. You know, like different, oh. like grains, like things that it took like a long time right. to like domesticate and like select for to make them. It's so good. It's so yummy. To <laughs> Just be like, what?
1: <laughs> well, I can see, you know, there's bears there and things that eat salmon. I you know, i
2: I'm not like, like of,
1: of course, I, you would see, but yeah, can you imagine realizing like, like what's, what salmon tastes like? Yeah. Just
2: how good it is. Oh. The, the, the beer, like, <laughs> these bears know what's up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, maybe that's the origin of like the bear cult to be like, I get what, it. What divine knowledge do they have? That, thank like, you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for abrugia. salmon. <laughs> Welcome back to Salmon Talk. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, for this second hunter-gatherer story, I am back on my honey tip. So, listeners who've been with us from the very, very beginning, or actually made it all the way back in the archive to episode three, might be a little bit worried that I've got another story about honey. Um, but but don't be. This one's extremely cool and, like, not at all gross. I mean, not at least grosser than honey is, in my view. Um, the <laughs> normal honey story. Yes, Just, I promise. <laughs> No content note about things in honey.
1: No honey triggers. Nope.
2: (laughs) No honey spoilers.
1: Honey doesn't spoil. Hey. Hey.
2: So this is from Atlas Obscura. Mm Mm-hmm. In the tree-strewn savanna of northern Tanzania, near the salty shores of Lake Ayasi, live some of the planet's few remaining hunter-gatherers. Known as the Hadza, they live in Hadzaland, which stretches for about 4,000 square kilometers around the lake. No one is sure how long they've been there, but it could be since humans became human. As one anthropologist put it in a recent book, quote, their oral history contains no stories suggesting they came from some other place, end quote. Anthropologists have been scrutinizing the Hadza for centuries, seeking in their stories and behavior Windows to the past. The Hadza themselves, at least at times, subscribe to a food-based method of (laughs) 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 self-understanding. They describe their predecessors based on what and how they ate. The first Hadza, the Akakanebe, or ancestors, ate raw game, plentiful and easily slain. As one ethnographer relays, quote, they simply had to stare at an animal and it fell dead end quote
1: i've gotten looks like that before
2: <laughs> the second the tla tla nebe ate fire roasted meat hunted with dogs the third the Hamakwabe invented bows and arrows and cooking pots and thus expanded the menu the hamai shonebe or modern people, the people of today, have a variety of meal strategies. Hadza hunting and gathering grounds are shrinking under pressure from maize farms, herding grounds, and private game reserves, and some work jobs and buy food from their neighbors. But between the two and 300 of the 1,300 Hadza remaining still survive almost entirely on wild foods. Meat, tubers, fruit, and honey. Of these staples... Honey is the Hadza's overwhelming favorite, but beehives located high up in thick-trunked baobabs and guarded fiercely by their stinging occupants, bees, um, are hard to get <laughs> Thank at you. and even harder to find. Enter the Greater Honey Guide, an unassuming black and white bird about the size of a robin. Greater honey guides, a distinct species within the honey guide family, love grubs and beeswax and are great at locating hives. This is a boon for the Hadza, who, according to some estimates, get about 15% of their calories from honey. When That's the Hadza at least 300
1: to, calories, in case you're wondering. A day? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. When, when Hadza want to find honey, they shout and whistle a special tune. If a honey guide is around, it'll fly into the camp, chattering and fanning out its feathers. The Hadza, now on the hunt, chase it, grabbing their axes and torches, shouting, "'Wait!' They follow the honey guide until it lands near its payload spot, pinpoint the correct tree, smoke out the bees, hack it open, and free the sweet combs from the nest. The honeyguide stays and watches. It's one of those stories that sounds like a fable, until you get to the end where the lesson normally goes." Then it becomes a bit more confusing. When Brian Wood, an assistant professor of biological anthropology at Yale, first heard about the honey guide as a graduate student, he was surprised. Mutualism, when two different species interact in such a way that both of them benefit, is a main engine of the natural world. Plants and pollinators need each other, as do gut microbes and mammals. But although people have played active roles in mutualisms in the past, you know, domestication is is likely the result of early agreements between, say, like, like Our ancestors and dogs' wilder ancestors. Such relationships between contemporary humans and untamed animals are practically unheard of. But not only do the honeyguide birds lead foragers to more bees' nests in a shorter amount of time, they found bigger, better nests for them too. This was even the most startling part. The bird did this, Wood discovered, without the mutual part of the mutualism. Thanks to Hadza custom, the birds weren't guaranteed any reward. Indeed, the Hadza were committed to stiffing their helper, meticulously destroying any grubs or wax that the honey guide might make a meal from. Woods quoted saying, I can go back into my notes and fa- to one of the very first times I was following a Hadza man. Uh, I wrote down, he's taking the honeycomb and throwing it into the bush. He just grabs a handful of bee larvae and honeycomb and throws it into a tree. End quote. The second time, Woods says, the same thing happened quote He actually dug a hole and shoved the honeycomb that remained into it and buried it. I asked the Hadza guide to explain what was happening, and his explanation was simply that they don't want the honey honeyguide to get too full. This would have impaired the bird's work for the next day, according to the Hadza.
1: You get that that grub hangover. Ugh.
2: So, nature documentaries depicting the relationship between the Hadza bee and the honeyguide often misrepresent it. Oh, Wood described a recent documentary called. Hadza, last of the first. Great. Yep. Uh, shot at the field site where he does his research. In one scene of the film, after a group of Hadza men smokes bees out of a hive. Nice. Uh, <laughs> They're shown throwing pieces of the honeycomb which hit the ground in slow motion. The bird, filmed in in close-up on a flattened patch of grass, snaps them up. A narrator explains The bird will wait patiently and fly down and will essentially take the leftovers. It's the most developed, co-evolved, mutually helpful relationship between any mammal and any bird. Hmm. As Wood soon found out, the story of sharing is not just sweeter, but stickier. (laughs) Soon after he submitted his article to the journal Evolution and Human Behavior, he received pushback from a reviewer that had come across Hadza, Last of the first. Wood is quoted saying, The reviewer said, I know this paper can't be right because I've seen on YouTube and the Hadza Repay honey guides. Um, and what? Wood says, Which <laughs> Wood says that scene is obviously staged. Um, and continues to say, quote, I had to bear down, dig in the trenches, and write the world's longest letter to the editor. <laughs> to describe what he saw in the film, Wood invoked a term coined a century ago. This is nature faking, deep fakes,
1: <laughs> honey guides. Yeah, that must be so frustrating to have someone be like, "Um, I saw on YouTube," and to have you, a researcher who has been in this community and seen these well, things, like be like, but
2: <laughs> like it's one thing to because there are countless professions and specialties at this point that uh, yeah, of course that, that, can, that can have that experience of somebody being yeah. like. Well, I saw a YouTube video, so you must be wrong. It's like an entirely other thing to have a like a peer reviewer. Yeah. Who From a presumably, journal. Presumably knows things that other YouTube videos have gotten wrong. You'd hope is-
1: <laughs> You would hope. But you know, we're also subject to the bias provided by just the the format of a documentary. We trust documentaries. And we trust that what they're saying is, you know, providing us with accurate information, which yeah. maybe we shouldn't do. But, yeah, nature faking. Yeah, <laughs> But I just thought that that was this incredible evolution of the relationship between this group and this species of bird. The bird has learned that they can get at the parts of the honeycomb that they like if they show the humans where to go. And the humans will yell and make smoke and whack yeah. things with an axe and yeah and, e- and they even get, if
2: they like even if it's not <laughs> i don't know uh, an even partnership
1: <laughs> well i don't think they completely starve the honey guides i think right, they yeah, just make it, it like, so that like honey guides can't get an easy meal they can't like glut right, themselves exactly. and then they uh, yeah. won't want to find honey anymore
2: yeah and so it's something yeah. that like they it's still easier for the honey guide to get to the yummy bits yeah, um, but I like getting you know, to work getting with into the a bush. Humans. But, yeah. Um, and so we're back to the role of ethnography and anthropology, to document what really happens so that we can really understand the lives and lived experiences of different cultures.
1: And as we've said before, one of the most important things about anthropology is that the more you study humans, the more you realize that there are infinite ways to be human. And we love what we do, and we love that we get to share these perspectives on the human story with you. So thank you for listening.
2: Yeah. Um, you can also find us on social media where we've been posting stuff from the archaeological world. Um, but also we've been posting some resources for those looking to read up on Black Lives Matter movement um, or looking for other perspectives besides ours. Um, and there's a lot of uh, really excellent content that's being published or that's been previously published and is being um, promoted again or is being like brought out from Catalogged? behind a paywall. And yeah. so there's a lot of stuff that's, that's uh, being put out there. And so we're doing our best to kind of nudge that in your path too. Um, and so you can find that stuff that that we're uh, you can find us, but also tons of other things like the people that we follow um, yeah. <laughs> on Facebook where the, the dirt podcast on Twitter, we're at dirt podcast and on Instagram we're at the dirt pod and I, I promise I'm going to put the, the love professor up. I found oh yeah yeah I, I if you have listen to, to our up.
1: previous episode uh where Amber had a a mini brainwave moment and remembered an interaction with the love professor um yeah that'll that'll be up there along with resources
2: um, along with like actual like valuable content there's also a like <laughs> a,
1: a very dumb a, photo
2: a, a creep shot of, <laughs> of this guy like living his best life with his like very bright singular pink truck.
1: truck oh yes indeed um but if you don't want to go to facebook twitter or instagram individually you can go to the DirtPod.com where all of those things are smushed together Onto our website, where we also have merch. And just a quick note since it is Pride Month, we have a special archaeology related pride design on our webpage that you can then slap onto a shirt or a mug or whatever you like. Um, you can also, on our webpage, sponsor an episode and on all of the podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, all of that, you can really, really help us out the most by leaving us reviews and stars. And we appreciate every single one we get. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening.
2: Yeah, thanks. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.